This is a picture of George Washington praying at Valley Forge. This is actually a controversial picture because there's many out there that would say that this scene didn't actually happen. But when you read through George Washington's journals, when you read his letters, when you see how he carried himself as the president, George Washington prayed. Now, we're going to continue in our patriotic spirit and as such, show God's hand continuing with the birth of this nation. Miracles involving fish just didn't happen in biblical times. In fact, one such miracle occurred during the Revolutionary War as well. While in Valley Forge, the American soldiers suffered greatly. Many even died for lack of food. Congress heard the pleas, but were helpless to provide. Washington warned Congress that if food didn't arrive soon, his army forces had three choices, starve, dissolve, or disperse. With no mortal on earth able to come to their aid, prayer was the only option. Perhaps the soldiers remembered that the Lord had once provided his hungry disciples with fish in a miraculous way. And that was about to happen again. Suddenly, in the midst of a winter famine, there was an unexpected warming in the weather. Too early to be accredited to springtime. Coincidence? The fall spring trickled uh, the shadfish into beginning their run up the Delaware River early. Thousands of shad, some described them as a prodigious number. Others said it was biblical proportions. Others said you could have walked across the fish across the Delaware. That's how many there were. And the overabundance caused thousands more to be gone up and looking at smaller streams and rivers, seeking any place to spawn. One of those rivers was the Shirkill River. A certain bend in that river, the water rose to only knee-high, which made it perfect for fishing. That river also happened to run right by Washington's camp at Valley Forge. The famine ended instantly, as thousands upon thousands of pounds of fish were caught and eaten. Hundreds of barrels were filled and salted down for the future consumption. Even today, the United States Fish and Wildlife Services credit to the claim that the shad were responsible for saving George Washington's troops from starvation as they camped along the Shukill River at Valley Forge. Short after the miracle of the fish, Washington wrote the following from Valley Forge. Providence has a just claim to my humble and grateful thanks for its protection and direction of me through the many difficult and intricate scenes which this contest has produced, and for its constant interposition in our behalf when the clouds were heaviest and seemed ready to burst upon us, since our prospects have miraculously brightened, shall I attempt to describe the the description of the condition of our army, or even bear it in resemblance further than as a memento of what is due to the great author of all, the care and the good and that have been extended in reviling us in difficulties, excuse me, relieving us in difficulties and distresses. Washington knew where his help came from, and so should we. This nation has been blessed by God from its birth still to this day. 
and through each and every one of us who name the name of Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? So today, we're going to look at chapter 13 in the book of Luke. We're going to see three different parables, parables that you may be familiar with. The parable of the fig tree, the mustard seed, and leaven, which we're going to see if we can't discern the proper reading of these. Now, I gave a definition once before. However, it requires revisiting and a deeper understanding. So what I'd like to do is read to you the meaning of a parable from the Wycliffe Bible Encyclopedia. The word parable is derived from the Greek parabole, which entomologically means a placing of things side by side, usually for the purpose of comparison. In the Greek translation of parabole, which was used to translate the Hebrew word marshal, some of the diverse meanings of marshal have been attached to parabole. Thus, in the New Testament, figurative sayings, similes, and metaphors are all called parables. The parable proper, i.e. the short, simple story from which some teaching points can be derived, is an extended simile or metaphor. A.M. Hunter suggests the following definition. A parable is a comparison drawn from nature or daily life and designed to illuminate some spiritual truth on the assumption that what is valid in one sphere is valid also in the other. And that's one of the important parts that we are going to explore today. What is valid in one sphere is also valid in another. In other words, let's let scripture interpret scripture. The title of today's message, Parables, Parables, Parables. Would you pray with me? Precious Heavenly Father, I love the way that you come to us. I love the way you relate your word. You take stories, Lord, and you give them meaning. Lord, we can look and see your miracles all around us. We can look and see your miracles in each and every one of our lives. And Lord, I pray that as we delve into your word today, that Lord, we would be able to take and glean these stories and apply them directly to our lives. For we need them. We need them to guide us. We need them to direct us. We need your Holy Spirit here in this place today in order to give us the proper interpretation of your word. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would fill this place, the hearts of each and every one of us. And Lord, let this scripture be etched upon our hearts. And if there's anything of man, let it fall upon deaf ears. Know how much we love you, we thank you, we sing your praises. And it's in Jesus' precious name that we pray. And everybody said, amen, amen. amen. If there's anybody who needs a Bible, just raise your hand and one of the uh, ushers will come around and give you one. So we'll be starting off in Luke chapter 13 in verse 1. There were some present at that time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because the way they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or the 18 of whom the tower at Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You know, anytime that there's a tragedy in the news, a violent death, 
a natural disaster, a murder, an earthquake, people begin to search for explanations. They look for meaning in it all. They're perplexed. They don't understand why this tragedy occurred. And they start to ask questions. Why? Why did this awful thing happen? Why they looked for someone to blame? They blame the offender if it was a crime. Sometimes they blame the victim, thinking that that person must have done something to deserve this. And sometimes they blame God for allowing this evil to happen. Those are the standard reactions to the terrible tragedies that we get and get our attention in today's days. And we'll also see that this is nothing new. The people back in Jesus' day speculated about why these tragedies occurred. And we'll see in their questions here in this passage with Jesus, what about those Galileans? What about the Galileans? That's the essence of what the people were saying when they told Jesus about this terrible tragedy in the news of their day. Jesus himself was from Galilee, so they figured this news story must be of some interest to him, especially as those Galileans were killed in Jerusalem. And we know that Jesus is on his way, traveling to Jerusalem. Of course, Jesus was also one who would speak his mind. He was a man of insight. And of course, you'd want to get his take on the story. And it was particularly interesting news, a news story with a bunch of theological and political overtones. So the passage begins with, there were some present at the time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now that within itself sounds pretty gruesome, right? Yeah. And we don't have much more information about this. I looked and I searched. There's nothing in Josephus and many other scholars that searched as well. And we don't see anything outside what is told in us here. Now, in essence, we knew that there were some Galilean Jews who had traveled to Judea or to Jerusalem. And it was during the religious holy days. They went to the worship at the temple that was located in Jerusalem. Okay, so far so good. But the Jewish nation at that time was occupied by who? The Romans. Yes. And in the providence of Judea, more specifically, it was under the rule of Pontius Pilate. So Jerusalem, especially, was the capital of the, Jew, the Jewish nation. And it was watched over closely by all the Romans because they didn't want them getting out of hand, especially during the high holy days. Remember, there was a huge influx of all of the Jews that came throughout the nation, specifically in order to worship during the holy days. And one of Pilate's main duties and responsibilities was going to be looking out for any potential troublemakers who might try to start a revolt or some kind of an uprising. And Pilate wouldn't have any problem using violence to put down suspected insurrectionists, much like our January 6th at our own capital. Well, apparently, for some reason, Pilate did suspect that those Galileans were worshiping at the temple. What did he do? He sent in his troops right into the temple courtyard while those Jews were offering up their religious sacrifices. Pilate's men struck them down during the very act of worship. The blood of the slain Jews then mixed with the blood of their animal sacrifices. Now, this was a horrific crime in the eyes of the Jews. For Think about it. A pagan Roman to desecrate the sacred temple grounds in that way? I mean, was a Gentile allowed to go onto the temple grounds like that? No. And yet here, while they were performing the sacrifices of, uh, uh, of that temple, 
see the slaughter was going to slaughter, and it was going to be during their, their religious duties. It was simply abhorrent. It was a brutal and a horrible death. So now the why questions start to arise. Why did this unspeakable evil happen? And it seems, though, that instead of just directing the wrath at the Romans, which I'm sure they did to some extent, it seems the people talking to Jesus may have thought that those Galileans themselves must have had it coming to them. For some reason, that's why there was the brutal death, that there was some kind of divine karma, if you will, for hidden sins that might have been committed. And we see that when we look at the book of Job. Remember his friends come alongside of him, and what do they start doing? They start accusing him of all kinds of covered sins or unconfessed sins, right? And that must have been on their minds. The way that Jesus answered them, as he says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? I tell, no, I tell you. And then Jesus takes it a step further. He even brings up another local news story. Or the 18 of whom the tower at Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. Do you see what the people who were talking to Jesus were doing? They saw the sudden deaths in the news, and they came to him and to form this opinion of some kind of divine justice. God striking down these people because of some hidden or not so hidden sin. But that's the way of thinking, to automatically draw to a conclusion. And that's why Jesus says twice, no, I tell you. What about those Galileans that were struck down by Pilate? What about those from Jerusalem who were buried under the rubble of Siloam? How about those people in Haiti buried under the rubble of an earthquake? What about the people in Chile buried in an earthquake? What about the murder victim, a young woman killed by a stalker? What about the young, uh, excuse me, we ask these questions and try to make sense of it all. We also like to find someone to blame. For some of the news stories, especially the crime, the criminal, he's the one to blame. In some cases, few people want to blame the victim. Well, you know, those people down in Haiti, their ancestors made a pact with the devil, and that's why the earthquake happened. Should I even mention the Westboro Baptist Church? We'll talk more about them later. But attributing blame can be a tricky business. In certain cases, you can almost draw a line between certain behaviors and a terrible outcome. For example, a guy builds a meth lab. The meth lab blows up. The guy is killed. Pretty clear connection, right? But then in other cases, it doesn't seem there's such immediate consequences for really bad behavior. Take, for example, somebody like Hugh Hefner. He spends over 50 years corrupting the morals of a nation. He makes billions of dollars, lives like a king well into his 80s. Or equate that to our modern-day Bill Gates. On the other hand, an innocent little girl gets beaten almost to death by her mom's sleazebag boyfriend because he can't stand her crying. Obviously, it's not the little girl's fault. You see, the fault lines are not always so clear. Whether we're talking about earthquakes or murder or cancer, divine payback is hard to read sometimes. Why do the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper? I would give you the passage in Matthew 5, 45. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. 
So then what's the natural next question? Why did God allow this to happen? That's one of the favorite questions of our ages, it seems. We want to blame God. We want to put God on trial. You know, during 9-11, I remember listening on the radio, and I heard this caller who calls in, and he said, you know what? We need to hold God accountable. Really? Really? A child dies a long and arduous death from leukemia, and you hear, I can't believe in a God who would allow this to happen. Whenever there's a tsunami or an earthquake or a mass shooting in the news or something like that that goes, that isn't so unusual anymore, you'll hear the same complaint. I can't believe in a God who would let this happen. As though death were not a bad thing in and of itself. But what about a God who allows billions to die over thousands of years? Is there anyone here who's going to avoid death? No, that is unless the rapture happens and then come quickly, dear Jesus, right? But pretty much everybody on this earth is going to die. Where is God in any of this? In all of this? But whether we blame God, blame the victim, or blame a criminal, we like to look for fault and assign blame, to point our finger in every direction but one. That is looking at ourselves. We don't like to do that, do we? And that's exactly where Jesus focuses his attention. When we're tempted to ask, what about those Galatians? Or what about those people in Haiti? The answer, and Jesus says, what about you? Are we any better that we shouldn't be struck down or swept away in a sudden death? Or as the New King James says, take heed unto yourself. And so Jesus says it twice. No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And that brings us to our first point today. Repent. Repent. In other words, take these examples of sudden violent deaths as a warning. If death is based upon people being sinners, then you yourselves ought to be worried. Because you too are sinners. If you're thinking it's a matter of divine justice, then you ought to be concerned about how you would stack up if you were weighed and measured against our God. No, it's not our God who's on trial. It's you and me, Jesus says. How do we stack up when we're measured against God's holy law? Are we so good and holy that we think that we will not die too? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, instead of making us feel better ourselves by looking down our nose at bad people out there, instead of misleading ourselves into thinking that the way of the Lord is not just, instead of those foolish reactions, I would say that here it is, we, keep judge, we try to keep judge, God's judgment away from us. Instead, what does Jesus do? He reminds us, not once, not twice, but calling us to repent. And that's a good thing. Because Jesus wants to see each and every one of us turn from our sinful nature. Turn from us. Turn from it before it's too late. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, I know probably some of you are thinking, Adam, you probably should have called this sermon, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Don't worry, we'll get to the parables. But you see, God doesn't want us to perish eternally. So that's why he calls us to repent. Repent. 
For God wishes that none should perish, his word says. God is calling out to us today. To repent means to turn from looking for an answer inside of you and instead leaning on an answer that God gives you from outside of you. Let me read that again. To repent means to turn from looking for an answer inside of you and instead leaning on the answer that God gives you from outside of you. And that answer is Jesus Christ himself. He's where you turn when you need to be in repentance. Turn from self to Christ. What about the Galileans? What about the Galilean? Or that should have been the better question. Jesus of Nazareth, the man from Galilee. Jesus, the one traveling from Galilee to Jerusalem for the holy days, for the Passover. Jesus is going right into Pilate's hands there in Jerusalem. And yes, Jesus of Nazareth will be the Galilean whose blood Pilate will mingle with the sacrifices. Indeed, Jesus' blood will be the sacrifice. Christ will be offered up as that perfect sacrifice to God, his holy and precious blood to cleanse each and every one of us from our sins. Jesus will take away all of our sins and pay that final sacrifice for all of us. Amen? Amen. Continuing in verse 6. And he told this parable. See, I told you we'd get to the parable. (laughs) A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. So the fig tree is the symbol of the nation of Israel. So Jesus uses it as a parable to remind the Jews that they are no better than the Galileans or those living in Siloam. Verse 7, And he said to the vine dresser, Look for three days now. I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? Now, you have to remember, back in those days, they didn't just plant trees so that they look pretty or beautiful. We have uh, two fruitless plums on our property. And you know what? I love the maroon color of them. Well, we don't ever get plums from it. It just sits there and looks beautiful. You see, they would have used these trees for their sustenance in order to make it by each and every day. Now, notice it says, look, for three years now, I have come seeking fruit. How long was Jesus' ministry? Three years. And what does the fig tree represent in the Bible? Israel, right? It often represents God's blessing or the people that have a special relationship with God. Israel. So the man in the parable represents God, and the fig tree represents Israel. Now, even as Jesus ministered to these people who would not respond to him or receive him, He regards the fig tree in this parable after finding no fruit on it after three years. And the owner says, cut it down. It's doing no more than soaking up nutrients from the soil and taking up room in the garden. That's how God felt about Israel. Verse 8. And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on it manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good, but if not, you can cut it down. Within the year, the vine dresser would do two things. First, he would dig around the roots. Our father, the vine dresser, as it says in John 15:1, does the same thing with us as he gets to the root of the issue, exposing our sin in our lives. Second, he would put manure, or dung as it says in the King James Version, and fertilize it. 
After giving a list of qualifications and accomplishments, Paul refers to them as rubbish, as manure or dung. Philippians 3 verse 8 states, Yet indeed I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. And I think it's apropos. For the best that our flesh can produce is nothing more than rubbish. Jesus did give the Jewish people another year. In fact, he gave them 70 more years before that temple would be destroyed. The, real, uh, the reality speaks of the fact that we have a long-suffering God. And that brings us to our second point today. God is long-suffering. God is long-suffering. We see the man in this parable is God. He shows grace and mercy as he gives the vine dresser one more year. Aren't you glad God just didn't give you one more year? That's the loving and merciful God that we worship. Verse 10. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. So this would be the last recorded time that Jesus was teaching in the, in the synagogues. Verse 11, and behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself up. Now, this is interesting because Jesus is going to go ahead and call her a daughter of Abraham. We're going to see that in verse 16. That means that this woman was a woman of faith. And yet for 18 years, the work of the enemy had bound her physically. Now, I would say that for better than 10 years, the enemy had me bound physically with alcohol and women and drugs. And yet again, he's long-suffering and good. And maybe today, you're struggling with some kind of thorn in the side, an ailment, a disability. Maybe it's financially, physically, or emotionally. Don't give up on God. Don't put him in a box and say, it's been 10 years, Lord. I've been patiently waiting, praying, and still nothing. I'm still waiting. Why? Has it been 18 years or longer? You see, this woman, faithfully, she continued with what she knew was the right thing to do. And I'll bet you she didn't feel like it at times. So here she was in the synagogue. If she wasn't there, she would have missed the uh, Jesus who just happened to walk in that day. But I remember many times in my own walk when I didn't want to go to a Bible study or a church service but I went anyway, only to experience Jesus ministering to me in a way that I'm convinced he wouldn't have done otherwise. So I've learned the secret. The more that I don't feel like meeting with the congregation, the more I need to be there. And I'm convinced that as people walk around needlessly crippled because they're not in the company of believers, not in the place where Jesus is. Hebrews 2.12 states, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing to you praise. Verse 12. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. When Jesus touches somebody who's addicted to drugs, alcohol, sexual perversion, or any other kind of sin, there comes a moment when they're made straight, immediately. Now, for some, that might sound overly simplistic, 
but I've seen it happen again and again, as I stated, in my own life too. To know that when Jesus touches you through the word, through the body, they're made straight immediately. But I've been coming to church for 18 months, and I've been caught up in this addiction and bowed down to that activity. You might say that, and I would say, keep coming, keep believing, keep worshiping, because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And there will come a time, just like with this daughter of Abraham, where you will hear in your heart, you are freed. And like her, you'll be able to stand straight. Verse 14, but the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. What a punk. What a coward. Notice this ruler, this Pharisee. Who does he say this to? Does he state it to Jesus? Oh, no, no, no. He turns to the crowd. He turns to the people. There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. She had been coming to his synagogue for the past 18 years, and he never saw it fit to heal her any of those days. Again, I say coward. But you know, we see that in our politicians today. We see that in our men, our children, our pastors, Afraid to admit the truth and so quick to point the finger at someone else, at something else. But there's a problem there. There's three pointed back at them. And that brings us to our third and our final point. Judge ourselves first. Judge ourselves first. Again, we can see the legalism of this Pharisee getting upset. Why? Because Jesus did work. What work did Jesus really do? What does it say here, right? He laid hands on her in order to heal her. I don't know. That doesn't sound too difficult for Jesus to do or for either any or one of us for that matter, right? Does that sound like work to you? And yet here it is. He doesn't even have the nerve to go ahead and call Jesus out to his face. Instead, he faces towards the crowd, a cowardly act. Folks, the Bible shows us how we should act and gives us examples of how we should not. This, I think, is pretty plain. Don't be a Pharisee. Verse 15. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, there it is, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? So again, we see the rules of man not the rules of God. You know, as I was looking these up, I looked at some of these rules. For example, what is a Sabbath day's walk? A Jew may travel on the Sabbath from within the walled limits of a town or a city based on the rabbinic law, which means that a journey of 2,000 cubics, in other words, 3,000 feet or just a half a mile, is considered the limit on the Sabbath day. Can you use your blender on the Sabbath? Orthodox Jews may find let there be light to be an important part of the Old Testament, but it can be a burden on Sabbath days. It is customary to rest on the Sabbath, which starts at sundown on Friday night and ends on sundown on Saturday. 
which means that during that time, you cannot turn on lights, ovens, or even blenders. Can you walk your dog on the Sabbath? Dog walking, dog walking out or any other animal needs to be done on a leash outside of a private domain on Shabbat. You must hold the leash within 10 and a half inches, 27 centimeters of the end, and no part of the leash can droop more than 10 and a half inches off of the ground at any time. Do you really think that if you're walking your dog and the leash droops less than 10 and a half inches, that God goes, oh, I saw that, Adam. I saw that. Oh, you sinner. You little sinner. You right? You see, on the Sabbath, Jesus loosed the woman who had been bound physically. Because of their rules and regulations regarding the Sabbath, the religious leaders would be, remain bound in their false piety and hypocrisy. Verse 17. As he said these things, his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at, the, at all the glorious things that were done by him. Jesus indicated that this woman was bound by Satan and all her adversaries were put to shame. Why? Because there was no better day than the Sabbath to overcome Satan. And all the people rejoiced. Now we're coming up to the part of the parable of the mustard seed. Now, many of us are familiar with this. However, um, when it gets preached, a lot of times... Well, let's just put it this way. I believe that there's a more accurate meaning. You see, one of the rules in interpreting the Bible is to go ahead and let Scripture interpret Scripture. It's what's called expositional, expositional consistency. In other words, that each of these different figures represent within the parables have to represent those same figures and symbols in all the parables. Parables especially are in need of some kind of protection because there isn't the expositional consistency. If there isn't the expositional consistency, then people can twist them into all kinds of crazy meanings. When studying through the book of Revelation in the area, um, uh, excuse me, in this area, Chuck Smith wrote the book, What the World is Coming to. And he states in there, he says, sometimes things are symbolic. Sometimes things are spiritual. But sometimes things are just what they say. A lamp is a lamp, a trumpet is a trumpet. And we should always be careful not to try to over-spiritualize that which wasn't meant to be. So with that in mind, let's take a look at this parable. Verse 18. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And what shall I compare it to? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nests in its branches. So we're going to put up a picture here, and mustard plants are really no more than a bush, not actually a tree. So the growth of this mustard seed would have represented an amazing, uncommon, or unnatural growth. Now, the common interpretation of this, uh, is the, of the kingdom of God, is that it's going to start very small, like a mustard seed. And then it's going to experience this great growth. And it's going to go ahead and win the whole world and close at the end of the age. And there's going to be a great wave of success and glory. Now, it's true. Jesus' teachings would start off small, right? And look at how many Christians there are in the world today. So it's a true statement to say from one man and his 12 apostles, a great, um, 
uh, relationship with God grew. However, coming back to our scripture here, we need to let scripture interpret scripture. So if you would, turn with me back to the parable of the sower. Turn with me to Luke chapter 8 in verse 5. Luke chapter 8, verse 5. In verse, excuse me, in verse 5 it states, A sower went out to sow his seeds, and as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. Ah, so we see the birds here also in this parable. If you remember, his disciples then came to him and said, Hey, Jesus, uh... What exactly did you mean? And quite honestly, I wish the disciples would have done that a lot more with all of his parables. So now jump down to verse 11. So Jesus goes ahead and explains it to him. And he says, now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes or the birds comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. So the birds have to represent evil. So coming back to our parable with the mustard seed, we have the birds of the air finding a home within what identifies itself as the kingdom of God. I believe Jesus speaks to his disciples as well as speaks to each and every one of us about these things so that when it happens, we aren't discouraged in our service to the Lord. That so many crazy things identify themselves as Christianity. The fact that Many of them have nothing to do with Christianity, yet they found a home in Christianity, but really have nothing to do with Jesus or the Bible. Think about it. I mentioned them earlier. The Westboro Baptist Church. Throw up some of the pictures. They stand outside a, a, a memorial service of a, uh, of a soldier. They go on these protests holding these signs. Do you think these individuals represent God or Christianity or Jesus? Are they winning souls for the kingdom by doing this? Spreading the gospel to all nations? Absolutely not. As such, these are the birds that we find at home in the kingdom of God. And as such, Jesus tells us we should not be shocked when we find these things. Verse 20. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. So again, this is another parable in which if we're using expositional consistency, it gets taken out of context. A common interpretation says, or should I say a misinterpretation, says of this parable that the kingdom of God will start off small, but will grow and eventually fill the earth. However, when we look at leaven in other parts of the Bible, what does it usually or what does it represent? Sin. Yes, sin and evil, right? Remember, we just went over that a few weeks ago in Luke chapter 12, verse 1. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, the sin of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. A little leaven leavens the whole bunch, right? That's not a good thing, is it? You see, Jesus isn't suddenly flip-flopping here and saying, oh, well, leaven's good. No, leaven's bad, right? He's not a politician trying to win the favor of the crowd. He's Jesus Christ espousing truth. So what is the flower made of? Wheat or seeds. Let's go back to our sower, sower parable again. Look at verse 11. Now, this parable is this. The seed is the word of God. 
So the seed or the wheat or the flower represents the word of God. So in our parable here, then it would appear that to represent the corruption of the word of God with false doctrine. The amount of false doctrine that professes the word of God in the world today is absolutely staggering. All you need to do is turn on TBN. Just put your hands upon the TV, send us lots of money, and you shall be healed. There's, enough, there's no lack of charlatans professing the word of God throughout our world today. Unfortunately, amen? Amen. We're going to stop there as we transition to our communion message. I'm going to ask the worship team to go ahead and make their way back up to the stage. I'm going to ask the ushers to go ahead and start handing out the elements. And I would ask you to go ahead and hold on to those elements and we'll all partake together. Now, I'd like to come full circle. Coming back to verse 1 where we started. What about the Galileans whose blood Pilate mingled with their sacrifices? The question should have been, what about the Galilean? Jesus of Nazareth, who suffered under Pontius Pilate. Do you think that Jesus, this Galilean, was a worse sinner than all of us because he suffered in this way on the cross? In a strange sense, yes. Jesus became the worst sinner in the world, the worst one who ever lived, the only sinner to have all of the world's sins placed upon him when he was nailed to the cross in our place. For our sake, God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him might become the righteousness of God. The divine judgment fell on Christ so that it would not fall on us and crush us and bury us underneath the rebel. So the good news for you today is there's no more divine judgment against you. Your sins are forgiven. If bad things happen to you and you die in some way, it won't be because God is condemning you or sweeping you off to hell. Instead, it's because of Christ's sacrifice. And you and I will rise out from under the rubble of death, rise to live with Christ, our Savior, forever in eternity. For he has conquered death. He has paid the price for our sins. The worship team is going to go ahead and start playing some music softly. And in such, let's prepare our hearts and minds, and then we'll all partake together. What about the Galilean? That's where we need to focus our attention. Fix your eyes upon Jesus, the founder of our perfect faith. You know, it's interesting. In the Arab world, they believe when you eat the same bread and drink from the same cup, the thought is that which is in you is in me. It's a common union, a common union, a communion. No longer two, but one. Matthew 26, 7 states, and as they were eating, Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. The body of Christ. Let us partake.
Then he took the cup, he gave thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sin. The blood of Christ, let us partake. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, there's nothing that we've done in order to earn the blessing and the opportunity in order to come together in communion, to remember the cost of our sin. Jesus, you sacrificed your body, your blood, for each and every one of us in this room. For the entire word, for as I stated before, you wish that none should perish. And Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here who hasn't made that commitment, who hasn't gone ahead and asked you into their hearts, I pray they would just simply believe. Believe that you are the Son of God, that you died, that you rose again in three days in fulfillment of the Scriptures. And Lord, that we have an eternity to live with you because of what you did on the cross. Dear Jesus, we can never thank you enough for the blessings given. So let us celebrate today. Let us thank you from the bottom of our hearts what you did on that faithful day. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.